0: Well, good morning Anchor Bay Church, we'll talk about that in a minute. My name is Brynn, I'm one of the pastors here. Before we get going, we want to take a moment and just be quiet before the Lord, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us with whatever narratives, whatever stories we brought into the room this morning, and so we'll be quiet for a minute, and then I will open us with a word of prayer, and then Mr. Rogers. Father, Son, and Spirit, we offer this time to you, not just this time, this moment, this morning, but this season. We pray that you would teach us more and more during this season of Lent what it looks like to follow you, even in the wilderness, even in our struggles, even in the struggles of the world, that we might be people who reflect who you are to one another, to our neighbors, to ourselves. We pray that this would be a season where we learn more and more what that looks like, that you would invite us deeper and deeper into love, that we would experience that in profound ways right now. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, did anyone see that Mr. Rogers documentary when it came out about five years ago? It it really made a splash. I always remembered Mr. Rogers as this kind of like quaint, nostalgic figure from my childhood, but he he was actually kind of a revolutionary, as we learned in this documentary. And I realized when I I came out and I saw it five years ago that next to Jesus and Brene Brown, he was probably the most amazing person ever to live. And given the acclaim that this documentary received, I think a lot of people would agree with that. Why? What was so magnetic about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Well, I think it was because for so many of us who grew up watching this show, Mr. Rogers created this place that would provide safety and empathy and understanding, even when you felt worried or afraid or unsafe. Mr. Rogers loved Jesus. He didn't talk about that on screen, but he he lived it. He lived it on stage. He lived it off the air. He showed what radical love could look like and could feel like in your neighborhood. The show wasn't about escaping reality to some magical kingdom or denying the real problems in the real world. It was about creating a dialogue about how to be a neighbor in the midst of a broken world and about how to create a community, a global neighborhood that we actually want to live in. Like this. Here's one example of it. In 1968, the country was at war. So on the show, King Friday declared war in the neighborhood and he set up all this barbed wire around his castle and he he wanted to protect himself and he prepared his cannons to fire. But the rest of the neighborhood wanted peace. And so Mr. Rogers and the rest of the neighborhood sent balloons to King Friday with notes written on them that said tenderness and kindness and peace and love. Also, King Friday would call off the war. That was the first episode. That's how Mr. Rogers started his show, by helping kids process the Vietnam War. Mr. Rogers took hard things that were going on at the time and he honored kids by talking about them. And he gave kids a framework for understanding them and and how to create a better neighborhood. So many of us, even after we're grown, we still long for something like that. We aren't struggling with those same issues anymore that they were in 1968, but our neighborhood has its own kind of brokenness. We have our own sets of fears and worries and pain. We're trying to process our own wars and our own injustices and how we play a part in all of it. We are desperate to make sense of it all. We want someone to help us navigate the world and we are longing for something better. And this is not a new longing. Well, like Pastor Gene and Doug and Adele mentioned, this last Wednesday, we started the season of Lent. It's the 40 days in the church calendar that lead us to Easter. And Easter is when we celebrate the good news that Jesus rose from the dead. Easter is the t- this time of joy and feasting. And every year as a church, we throw a big party to celebrate the good news and our eternal life in Christ. But we can't get to Easter without Lent. And Lent... Is this time that we set apart to engage in that longing for something better, the waiting for better news to come? It's a time when the church invites us to consider our mortality, our suffering our present-day condition. And so as we engage this season, we are invited to look around at what struggles our world faces and to turn to Jesus for a framework for how to understand them and then let him guide us on how to move forward towards a better neighborhood. So if you brought your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Luke 10, to the passage that Amanda read for us a few minutes ago. That's Luke 10, the Gospel of Luke. And it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And whether or not you're familiar with the New Testament, with the Gospels, you probably have heard this story before, or at least heard that phrase, the Good Samaritan. It's probably the most famous of Jesus's parables. And and we think of it like it has this kind of straightforward moral message. And it does. But this passage also has all kinds of secret clues in it, like, like hidden Easter eggs, And we had to seek out the Easter eggs to really understand the story. And so we're going to talk about some of that stuff this morning. So if you are familiar with this passage, if you have heard this a thousand times, I'd invite you to listen to it as if you were hearing it for the first time. And if you stick with me, I think this familiar parable might have a fresh word for us as we enter into this Lenten season. So Luke 10. So the passage starts like most passages in the gospel do. Jesus is going around the neighborhood and he's preaching and he's healing and he's casting out demons and he's doing Jesus-y things. And then one day a lawyer stands up and asks him a question. The lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus never gives simple answers to complex questions. He just responds to the question with another question. He says, well... What is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, lawyer, you know the answer to this question. You tell me. So the lawyer responds. He says, As it is is written, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, Yeah, so just do that. Love God, love your neighbor. And then he tries to move on, but not so fast. The lawyer asks a follow-up question. Classic lawyer. Ah, Jesus, yes, yes, but who is my neighbor? So, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, like you say, if that's how to build a better neighborhood, then who exactly is that? Who exactly is this neighbor? And it's a great question, because if I am supposed to love this nameless, faceless neighbor with the same passion and urgency and radical care that I love myself, I want to know who that neighbor is. Where am I supposed to focus this radical love? It was a question that the rabbis of their day had put a lot of thought into. Some of the the rabbis said that your neighbor was any Israelite, no matter where they were born. Others said your neighbor had to be a natural-born Israelite. Some said your neighbor had to be a natural-born Israelite and also a good person. That's who your neighbor is. Everyone drew the line somewhere. We do it too. So the lawyer asks, Jesus, where do you draw the line? Who would you say our neighbor is? And so Jesus Jesus decides to tell the lawyer a story, and he sets the scene in this infamous road between Jericho and Jerusalem, and it was an infamous road because it was a dangerous road. There were all kinds of of thieves and, and robbers and twists and turns, and they could hide in these little enclaves and jump out at you and take everything that you had, and if you resisted, things could get violent. They used to call this road the bloody way, the bloody way, because it wasn't a road that you could guarantee traveling through and living through. So one day, this man, he walks through the bloody way and he gets attacked by robbers and he's stripped and he's beaten and he's left for dead on the side of the road. But there's good news because another man is walking by and it's just in the nick of time and this man happens to be a priest of all people who's on his way back from a worship service. Surely a man of the cloth will get this man to a hospital, right? Or not. The priest just sees him and he keeps going. He just keeps walking on by. So that was weird. But that's not the, next, or that's not the end of the story. The next man to walk by is a Levite. And a Levite wasn't quite as holy or high-ranking as a priest, but he also had a job in the temple, so he's probably a good guy. The Levite will definitely stop to help. But no, the Levite just keeps going too. What a jerk. These are the bad guys in the story, Right? the priest and the Levite, there's a dying man on the side of the road and they just ignore him. Now we don't know, the scripture doesn't tell us exactly why they didn't stop to help, but we can imagine they could have had any number of good reasons. Maybe they were busy, maybe they were distracted, maybe they were otherwise engaged, maybe like we usually assume they just didn't care. But I think the reasons that they didn't stop were a little bit more complex than just that they were busy or cold-hearted or not paying attention. In those days, you were only obligated to help the neighbors who were in your tribe. But this man is naked, he's unconscious, there's no way to tell who he is. So we don't know if he's their neighbor or not. Also, he could be dead. And religious folk back then couldn't touch dead bodies without becoming ceremonially unclean, which means if they were to try to help him and they discover that he's actually dead, then they would have to go back to Jerusalem where they're coming from through the bloody way. They'd have to go through the whole days-long rigmarole of ritual washing and cleansing just, just to be able to keep doing their jobs. If they stop and try to help this one man and he's dead, it could keep them from serving everyone else for weeks. These weren't bad guys in the story. These were complicated people with complicated situations, and they probably had a million considerations that they were trying to balance. Whatever their reasons, the priest and the Levite, they keep walking on by. But thankfully, in the story, there's a third man. And when Jesus introduces this third man, there's a little twist that they didn't expect. He says, a Samaritan came to where the man was. Everyone would have heard that and gasped. Everyone would have heard that and gasped. (gasps) A Samaritan? What? The Jewish people hated Samaritans. Samaritans talk loudly on their cell phones in coffee shops. They use the word literally, figuratively. Samaritans microwave fish in office break rooms. They are the worst. The Jewish people actually had a a daily prayer ritual to ask God not to give Samaritans eternal life. But it's a Samaritan, a Samaritan who stops to help the dying man on the side of the road. And the Samaritan, he bends down and he dresses the wounds and he pours oil and wine on them. And then he puts the man on his own donkey and he takes him to a local inn and he pays for the treatment until he's well again. He puts his own safety on the line. He puts his own schedule on hold. He sacrifices the equivalent of two days' wages to help this man who could have given him nothing in return. The Samaritan doesn't run away from the bloody road. He runs straight into the bloodiest parts of it, the parts with wounds and flies and circling thieves. And he pulls a man out of it who could have lost his life there. Why? Why does the Samaritan stop and put himself out for an unknown stranger? for a potential enemy? Why does he take such great cost and risk to himself? Well, we don't know why the priest and the Levite walked past the dying man, but we have a clue as to why the Samaritan stopped to help. There's this interesting progression that's easy to miss in this story to to how close the three characters get in proximity to the man on the side of the road. It says the priest went to the road where the man was. He went to the road. He found himself in the same general vicinity. The Levite got a little bit closer. It says he went to the place where the man was. He found himself in the same general area. He went into the ditch. Maybe, maybe he saw, went kind of up to where the man was in the ditch. But the Samaritan went to the man. He went straight to the man himself. And when he saw him up close, Jesus said, the Samaritan had compassion on him. And the word Jesus uses for compassion, it's one of my favorite words in the New Testament. It's the word splanchnizomai. Can you say that with me? Splanchnizomai. Splanknizomai, it comes from the word for bowel. Literally, it says Jesus was moved in his bowels. Because compassion, when they thought about compassion, it was a very visceral word. It was supposed to come from deep in your guts. The priest and the Levite saw the man on the side of the road, and whatever their reasons for walking by were, they acted like it was a problem. It was an inconvenience. It was a mess. It was a bleeding body. But the Samaritan sees a person, a flesh and blood man right in front of him, and he feels the man's situation deep in his guts, and that makes the difference. For him, the question of who is my neighbor wasn't a concept to be defined, but a real-life person to be healed. A real-life human being with a face and a family and a sense of humor. Someone who was worth a little sacrifice and inconvenience to save. There's another interesting detail that I love in this story that we sometimes miss. It says that the Samaritan pours oil and wine on the man's wounds. And we might look at that and we might think that it's just good medical treatment. He's just disinfecting the wound. But this is actually temple language. This is the language of worship. During religious ceremonies back then, priests and Levites would pour out oil and wine as a part of their worship. It was part of their sacrifice to God. The priest and the Levite in this story had just come from the temple. They would have poured oil and wine on the altar as part of their worship. But the third man, the Samaritan, this, this is how he worships. He worships on the bloody way. He loves God by loving his neighbor. By pouring out oil and wine to meet the needs of the man in front of him. How he loves his neighbor is literally how he loves God. Already, he's living a life that is meant for eternity. So Jesus tells the story, and then he turns to the lawyer, and he asks him one last question. He says, so which of these three was the neighbor to the man? And the lawyer, who probably would have had many friends who were priests and many friends who were Levites, but not a single friend who was a Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He just says the one who had compassion on him. And Jesus responds, go and do likewise. That's how to live into eternity. Love God by loving your neighbor. And we could stop the sermon there. Just go and do likewise. The way to build a better neighborhood is to be like the the good Samaritan. When you see people in need on the side of the road, go help them. Obviously, call 911, give them a hug, bring them a meal, contribute to the campaign. And that's not a bad message, and it's a really, really good message. And if everyone were to follow the morality of the parable of the Good Samaritan, then we would have a much better world. But here's the thing. So many of us, we we buy into this kind of story in theory. We like the idea, except if we're all doing this in the world, then why 2,000 years after Jesus told this story do we still have problems in the neighborhood? Well, I think because for so long we have identified with the wrong character in the story. We've been trying to be like the Good Samaritan. But in the story, I don't think we're supposed to identify with the Good Samaritan, at least not at first. Because before we can see ourselves as the Good Samaritan, we have to identify with the man on the side of the road. From his perspective, from his place on the bloody, dusty ground, we can look up and we can identify who the good neighbor actually is and who isn't. So many of us, we, we spend our, our whole lives just trying to be good people, make ends meet, live the good life, and then at some point, tragedy strikes or we, we're struggling with something. We're struggling with sin or we're facing challenges in our lives and we find ourselves with thought patterns that we just can't change and we look up and, and we ask who will help us who will be our neighbor and the lawyer tells us the, that the neighbor is the one who had compassion and here's the beautiful thing about this parable in the new testament that word for compassion that we said nizomai, it's only used to talk about one person's behavior jesus in the Gospels, it says he saw the crowds and had compassion, like Nizomai, on them, and healed the sick. Moved with compassion, like Nizomai, Jesus touched their eyes and they received sight. Filled with compassion, like Nizomai, Jesus said, "Be clean." So we read this parable and we think that Jesus is telling us to be decent human beings and to help those in need. But I don't think that really gets at the heart of what Jesus is saying. We have to connect with our need for healing first before we try to help other people. Who is the man on the side of the road in the story? It's us. Who is the good Samaritan in this story? It's Jesus. Jesus doesn't see us half dead in our need and walk to the other side of the road. He crosses the infinite distance between heaven and earth to find us. And he doesn't just pour out oil and wine on our wounds. He pours out his blood and body so that through him our wounds can be healed. It's only when we can identify with the man on the side of the road that we can identify with the compassion for others, just like the Samaritan did. Because the only way to love like this is when we have experienced this kind of love ourselves. It's like breathing. You can't exhale radical love if you haven't inhaled it first. Now, the early church tried to live this out. They loved their neighbor's their unlikeliest neighbors, neighbors who their community said they had no business loving, no time to love, no reason to love. They love their neighbors because they had felt first the radical, unlikely love of Jesus in their own lives. The early Christian leader, Tertullian, wrote about a benevolence fund that Christians put together to support widows, orphans, people with disabilities, people who were sick, the elderly, sailors, people in prison. Most of the the major social movements of the last 2,000 years Public education, higher education, literacy, children's rights, the abolition of slavery, civil rights, women's suffrage, soup kitchens, hospitals, mental health institutions These are started by Christians. These movements, this radical generosity, came out of being loved themselves. You exhale what you inhale. And we know, right, Christians have never done this perfectly. The New Testament and our history books are also filled with stories of Christians who hoarded their resources, they got into squabbles over doctrine, they oppressed others, they took care of their tribe and neglected the needs of other people. But when we are at our best, the invitation is to love in the same way that Christ has loved us. That will transform the neighborhood. So what does this look like for us today? What does it look like to meet the needs of our neighborhood? First, part of our learning how to love our neighbors outwardly is by being deeply connected to how deeply God loves us inwardly. To identify first with the man on the side of the road. So really, I want to give another plug for uh, joining us next weekend for our Lenten soul care retreat with Doug and Adele and our worship and prayer night next Tuesday. These are two opportunities to inhale the love of God in our own lives before we try to exhale it this Lenten season. And then I want to offer three practical steps that we uh, we can take this Lent. So traditionally, we already talked a little bit about this, the season of Lent has three main pillars, fasting, prayer, and generosity. And this Lenten season, we are basing our sermon series on that concept. We're calling it Fast, Pray, Love. You get it? Because eat, pray, love? I got a picture of that. So eat, pray, love, except we, we switched out the word eat for the word fast. <laughs> and I changed the, the author to Jesus Christ. <laughs> I was pretty proud of that. But uh, Mo John and Carolyn McDonnell are <laughs> designing our aesthetics for this series, thankfully. Um, <laughs> so every Sunday during the season of Lent, we are going to be focusing on one of our outwardly focused ministries or ministry partnerships. We need to be talking about these on Sunday mornings. We'll hear a sermon or a highlight each week to learn about one area of our neighborhood that as a church we feel called to serve in the season of our church's life. We'll hear about things like College ministry, seafaring industry, immigration, our healthcare ministry, the realities of mass incarceration. We'll talk about the growing problems of food insecurity in our area, human trafficking. And our hope in this season is to offer a deep biblical and theological connection to our ministry partnerships. Why do these partners matter to the heart of God? Why should Christians care? Who even is our neighbor? So that's how we'll be spending Sundays. But Lent goes beyond just Sunday mornings. Traditionally, during Lent, uh, Christians choose to either make some kind of sacrifice in the form of a fast or they pick up some new spiritual discipline for these six weeks. The hope is to create some set-apart space to reflect on Christ's sacrifice and to be reminded of it each time we decline some luxury item like alcohol or social media or TV, even sometimes the occasional meal or to take on a new practice that can cultivate a deeper relationship with God in our lives. So I want to invite us to do that again this year, but we're going to take that practice a step further. So a few years ago, I read about a predominantly African-American congregation in Virginia called the Alfred Street Baptist Church. For one month uh, in January that year, or a couple years ago, the entire congregation of Alfred Street Baptist Church participated in a collective fast. They didn't fast from food necessarily, but they gave up certain luxuries that cost money. Things like chocolate, their daily cappuccino, a glass of wine, ordering takeout, maybe certain subscriptions or a streaming service. It didn't have to be big, just something that cost them money. And they gave that thing up for the month of January. And at the end of the month, each individual calculated how much they would have spent on that thing that they fasted from. How much would they have spent on those little luxuries? And they made a sacrificial offering for that amount. Together, they collected an offering that would go out the door of the church. When all was said and done, just in that one month, Alfred Street Baptist Church collected over $100,000 just by fasting from little luxuries, and with that money, they set up a scholarship fund for students who were attending Howard University and were having trouble graduating because of finances. Now, to be fair, they had 4,000 people in their congregation (laughs) participating in their fast, so we're probably not going to be able to raise that kind of money, but I wonder what even a smaller church like ours could do if we followed the leadership of Alfred Street Baptist Church and took a season to fast from some luxuries, even small ones, so that we could give life to someone else using money that we would have otherwise spent on ourselves. So maybe that means committing to having friends over for dinner instead of going out to eat at a restaurant. Maybe that means packing our lunches at home or not buying any new clothes for the next six weeks or staying in for game night instead of going out. Maybe it means getting a little bit more creative with how we spend our time so that we can be more thoughtful about how we spend our cash. And then together, we can give that cash away. It might feel like a small impact at an individual level, but it could have a big impact when we combine our efforts over a whole season. What could we collectively do together to serve our neighbors? So after Lent is over uh, and we're celebrating Easter and Eastertide, we will pool all the money that we didn't spend during our fast and we'll, we'll give all of that money away to our ministries and partner organizations uh, that we will be hearing about over the course of Lent on Sundays. None of that money will be kept for general church operations. It will all go to serve our neighbors, whether they're struggling with houselessness, food insecurity, loneliness, incarceration, or problems with immigration. It's one way that we can exhale out the love of Jesus that has been inhaled to us. Because when we do this, our Lenten fast isn't just about giving something up, it's about giving life to others. It's about sacrificing just as Jesus has done for us. That's the fasting part. Fast, pray, love. The next invitation is to pray. One thing that often strikes me in the stories about Jesus is how Jesus sees people that no one else seems to want to see. He sees people on the margins, on the fringes, and he loves them. So our invitation during this Lenten season is is to ask God to open up our hearts and our imaginations toward meeting the needs of our neighbors. And then as a church, let's pray big prayers for healing in the world. So when you walked in, you should have gotten one of these Fast Pray Love prayer books, guidebooks. If you didn't get one of these, we'll have some more in the back for you. Every week, throughout the season of Lent, we have prayer prompts written for you to go through and pray for one ministry or ministry partnership that we'll be highlighting that week. This week, we wanna start by inviting you to pray for foster families and the foster system in Massachusetts. As a congregation, we are still learning about how to care best and and engage with the foster families in our uh, local community and in Massachusetts. We are still too inexperienced in this area to feel like we can highlight it right now, but we aren't too inexperienced to pray and to ask God for guidance as we look for ways to support our neighbors who are connected to the foster system in some way. So that's how we'll kick off our prayer this week, by praying for our foster families, our foster kids, and the foster system in Massachusetts. And we're going to do this every week. Every week, we want to invite you to pray throughout the week for the people who are served by the local ministry that we will talk about that Sunday, for the volunteers, for both who attend our church and who are beyond our church, and for bigger solutions to the issues that they face in the world. And then as you pray, I want to invite you to pay attention to the ministry that connects on your heart the most. Where where do you feel most connected? As you pray, what neighbors do you feel most drawn to serving? What causes do you have some experience or insight into or interest in? Because the last step in fast, pray, love is love. Ultimately, fasting and prayer are intended to lead us to love. And so two weeks after Easter, April 13th and 14th, we're going to be doing our next Serve Sunday. But it's going to be a whole serve weekend. Serve Sundays or or serve weekends are when we cancel our regular Sunday morning worship services and we worship in a different way by going out to serve our neighbors all over the North Shore. Typically, we do serve Sundays on the fifth Sunday of the month, but this spring that would be on Easter. We don't want to mess with the church calendar. So we are celebrating Easter like we typically do. We'll throw a big party uh, here on Sunday morning because we believe that the resurrection of Jesus is worth stopping everything for a party. But two weeks later, we will be doing our Serve Sunday weekend. That Serve Sunday, we're hoping to be able to serve with the ministries that we are talking about on Sunday mornings throughout the season of Lent. We'll be doing some gardening for a local foster family. We'll be putting on a free healthcare clinic for those who lack access to healthcare. We'll make and serve a meal to our neighbors in need Lots of things like that will have lots of opportunities. I love Serve Sundays because Serve Sundays give us practice in serving our neighbors face to face in a way that we hope will go beyond our church walls and those occasional Sundays and become more of a lifestyle for us. The hope is that that through these we would have practice toward becoming people who exhale the love of God in our day-to-day lives that has been inhaled and breathed into us. And just like we learn from the story of the Good Samaritan, serving our neighbors is an act of worship. We aren't canceling worship those Sunday mornings just because we aren't doing a regular Sunday service like this one. We're worshiping in a different way, in the wild, in the field, on the bloody road. So as you are fasting and praying this season, I want to invite you to pay attention to which ministries and partnerships you feel most drawn towards. Or maybe as a family, if you have kids, you can do this with your family. Where do you as a family feel called to serve? And I'd encourage you to sign up to serve with that ministry on Serve Weekend so that we can serve our neighbors up close. In the end, Jesus says that we will be gathered before God and we'll be asked a few questions and those questions won't be a test on doctrine or eschatology or on the inher- inerrancy of scripture. What Jesus says that we will be asked at the end of time is When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was a stranger, did you welcome me in? When I was sick, did you take care of me? When I was in prison, did you visit me? The true test of our faith won't be in how much we know about the Bible or how many people we told about the four spiritual laws or got to pray the sinner's prayer. Jesus says the true test of our faith will be whether or not we had compassion, if we fed the hungry and clothed the poor, and whether or not we showed hospitality to strangers and visited those in prison. So our hope this season is to, to put these things into practice, to fast from luxury so that we can be supportive and healing in the world to pray for neighbors just like us, whom God has already been showing very real compassion, to love, to demonstrate Christ's compassion, splint nizomai, up close. It's a beautiful thing when we can start to move our thoughts away from from just being do-gooders or giving to charity and toward justice and solidarity with our actual neighbors as Jesus does, because that's the work of the kingdom. So I'd like to invite the band to come back up, and as they're coming up, I'll close in prayer, and we'll be praying a prayer written by St. Francis of Assisi, who was a monk known for his solidarity with the poor. So would you pray with me? May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships, so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world. Amen.